Having a Gas is the podcast that chats to the great and the good of the creative industries. And in particular, finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for cooking to, for dancing to, f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Steve Harrison, Blackpool lad, agency founder, creative director, and now author of the new book, Can't Sell, Won't Sell, Advertising, Politics, and Culture Wars, Why Adlander Stopped Selling and Started Saving the World. You were saying that um, it's very difficult to be able to think and speak at the same time, but of course, our mutual friend, Paul Burke, that's just what he does. My God, I know, for an hour and a half, eh? Yeah, yeah. So... um, he was the one who um, he was the one who directed me to the book, and obviously the book's what we're going to be talking about here today. And for the benefit of the audience, the book is called "Can't Sell, Won't Sell: Advertising, Politics, and Culture Wars: Why Adland Has Stopped Selling and Started Saving the World." So uh, it's a it's a hot topic because you know, as we've we've talked about before, there's an awful lot of social purpose marketing out there at the moment. Yes, there is, and. and um, well, as, as, as you know, I like to go back to the start and work towards how we got to where we are now. Um, yeah. And I'd, I would like to start with just a bit of personal background for you. So um, from, you know, what was, you, what was your growing up background? Where did you grow up and how did you get towards Adland in London? Um, I grew up in uh, the big toffee apple, Blackpool. <laughs> of um, so I where. Well, frankly, you are taught to sell things, you know, kind of like uh, when you're 12, 13 years of age, you're expected to work on the Golden Mile, or you were in those days. Um, And, you know, your summer holidays were spent um, out flogging things, you know. Um, I mean, the kids I knew would would take a trolley down to Blackpool North Station um, and take visitors' luggage, you know, to their B&B and that kind of thing and, and steal it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I'm from Blackpool. Then uh, landed in uh, in London. Uh, very old. I spent years in ac- academia because Blackpool has no jobs outside of it. Teaches you everything you need to know by the time you're 18, and then cannot teach you anything else thereafter. So you're very worldly, but you have no job prospects. Um, and so I went to university and carried on going to university until they eventually said, you can ha- no longer have any more grants. Get a fucking job. Yeah, what year was um, that? God, 1985. Right. Uh, I was, I'd, I'd got a, oh God, a series ranks of, you know, kind of degrees and that kind of stuff. Uh, and so like everybody else in the mid-80s from the north of England, we all moved en masse down to London and settled in Brixton and Peckham, um, as, as emigrants do. They settle in villages, you know, they take the village with them. And we all lived in um, Hard to Let in, in Brixton. Oh, actually, I, I, I lived with about eight other people in a house in, in um, Clapham. Yeah. Um, but I had no job. I had no prospects at all, you know, kind of. Um, and... Um, and I was 30 years of age and I'd never worked, you know, apart from gardening, bar work, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah well, do, you think it's a, do you think it's as easy for people from the north to move down to London at the moment? No, of course. Well, I'm not sure. I don't think people, I think if you told people nowadays that there are eight of you living in a, in a house in Clapham, they, they, then people would regard that as terrible hardship. 
you know, and the fact that we took over what used to, what they were called hard to lets, that Lambeth Council couldn't let out the council houses. They were so dirty, so infested, so, so they'd been, they were just shitholes and no one wanted them. So if you were willing to go in and clean them, then you jump the queue for a council house. Right. Now, I don't think, I think that would be regarded as scandalous nowadays, whereas we regarded it as a brilliant opportunity. So eight people living in a house would be regarded as um, exploitation by the landlord, but we we were paying, you know, kind of 15 quid a week for, for rent. It was good. And living in hard to let. So it's, it is difficult to get down now, I think, but... I don't think people are as tolerant of the hardships that one encounters whilst one is establishing oneself. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yes. There's, um, uh, there's an author called Douglas Murray who uh, I heard recently saying that uh, modern people have lost the tragic sense of life, which is why coronavirus is proving so hard for us because we're not yeah. used to these kind of hardships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and they also the realisation that they are only temporary. Yes. You know, kind of, um, I'm afraid that with the, with the advent of identity politics, you become a, uh, a, a poverty-stricken emigrant from the north of England, and that's who you are, and you kind of wear that badge. Whereas we, we were as, aspirant, ambitious chances, you know. Yeah. And we yeah. wore that badge, and we do, you know, and we, we were often an adventure. Whereas I think if you... Identity politics tends to classify you and put you in that classification on a permanent basis. Yeah. And it becomes you. And it becomes you, you know? So there's what you are now, but there's also what you could become. So what you are at one point was an unemployed... That's the danger with identity politics. It it takes a static view of socio-economic differentiation. Yeah. And so you moved down there uh, with not many prospects. And how did you get... (laughs) <laughs> zero prospects, and eventually became the global creative director uh, for Wonderman, uh, the ECD for Ogilvy One. How do you manage that? Um, good fortune, really. I was they used to produce a magazine called Miss London, which was a free sheet for secretaries to find jobs, primarily females, uh, and it was free. So it was about the only thing I could afford to read when I was on the tube. Right. And I saw an advertisement which said researcher required Ogilvy and Mather direct. Well, I had no clue what Ogilvy and Mather were, but I knew I could research because of my background in academia. And I rock up and um, I, had, I didn't know jack shit about, you know, you, I mean, the, the, the advice you should give is pe- to people is, is do your research, you know, kind of know who you're going. But there's no internet in those days, you know, kind of like, and I went into this room I didn't know what they did. Ogilvy and Mather, you know, and it was only a small room in the in the in the in the front of the building at Nightway House in Soho Square. I thought this is a small outfit. Little knowing that you know when the doors opened on serried ranks, it was like something from the Man from from Man from Uncle. It was a 1960s show which had its headquarters, yeah. you know, kind of in a, in a little shop front, and then you just open up to this cavernous expanse of of workers and whatever. And the only reason I got in was because the managing director, God bless him, um, God, God, come on, come on. 
Anyway, the managing director was from Blackpool, and so am I. And so we talked about Matthew Mordenson and Moody, not Bartle Bogle, Bartle Bogle and Hegarty, you know. Um, Brian Thomas was his name, God bless him. And because I was from Blackpool, he let me in. All right. He said, and he said, when can you start? And I looked at my watch and said, 10 minutes. You know, Brilliant. Was, and you were in. Yeah. And then made it up. Yeah. And uh, my advice to anyone in trying to get into this racket is do not set your heart upon the role that you ultimately want, be it copywriter, art director, planner, you know, UX designer. Start, take a job as a photocopier, you know, if people do photocopying anymore. Take the job <laughs> as the cleaner. Take it, just get in there and, and make yourself useful. Yeah, yeah. And that's, well, that's a proper uh, soundbite of someone who grew up in the North. Uh, when you did, that's exactly what, certainly I'm used to, I've been raised by people from uh, Salford, born in the right. uh, 1920s. So, um, yeah. yeah, so you were in direct marketing, which yes. uh, is the analog equivalent of what we now do on social media, sending adverts straight to the end user. Is that right? Sales activation stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I would point out that um, when I entered the direct marketing, it was in much the same dire state as uh, sales activation is, is now. That um, the, the, the idea that you were you could build a brand simultaneously whilst making a sale never didn't really occur to anyone in direct marketing and i don't think that it's very it's too much of a preoccupation of people who work in sales activation now in 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 um in digital sales activation and so i think that there is a there is a great opportunity for an agency as we did to uh, to be cognizant that each communication you're making actually contributes to the, the image of the brand that you're selling. And I, so we were quite different. Our approach, my approach, you know, kind of our approach was at Ogilvy and May the Direct and thereafter was one of merging brand with direct. And I think there's, a, there's an opportunity for that today, which I think the very clever James Murphy has seized with uh, new commercial arts. Yeah, um, yeah. He has accepted that there isn't, that, that, that if you can do the full funnel of advertising and sales act brand building and sales activation, then hey, you could sell for another trillion dollars in ten years' time. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was uh, we've literally just been dis- uh, discussing NCA in the office actually, um, because it looked to me like the model of uh, when someone uh, someone dis- not discovers notices that they could. L- start a new agency, doing things differently by their own rules. Because obviously they already started Adam and Eve, grew that, sold it, move on, take Halifax yeah. and a number of other clients and then do it all again. Yeah. So mm. yeah, we, we have been discussing them. I'm looking forward to seeing where that's going. But so in your, in, your, uh, in your point of view, the sales activation that's going on online at the moment on digital uh, mm. social media is not consistent at all with brand building. It's just trying to do expedient individual yes. sales. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, I, I must admit I haven't done an in-depth research into it, but my experience of it is, mm. is that it, if you throw enough shit at the wall, some of it will stick. Or if you wink at enough girls, and am I allowed to say things like that anymore? <laughs> One of them will let you kiss them, you know, kind well, of... Yeah. Um, Whether you're allowed to say it or not, I've seen people practice that method, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yes, and I think that it... Requ- it, it 
and, and sales activation, I mean, digital from being a, a, uh, a false promise for a good long time, you know, with the, you know, kind of, is actually delivering on sales now, but, uh, but, but it, unless advertising gets its shit together and, and re, relearns the, the, the ability, the skill of brand building, then I'm, I'm afraid that the sales activation is going to destroy those brands. Yeah, so you talk about this at the length. The emphasis upon sales activation. You know, I mean, Pinnett and Field say that the, uh, the IPA say that the split should be 60%, 40%. Uh, brand building versus sales activation. Now you know as well as I do, Greg, that that is 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 not even forty sixty now. You know, no. and unless the uh, anyway, unless the the advertising agencies um, regain the confidence to build brands properly, um, then I think a lot of those brands will 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 be in trouble anyway. So to a, an idiot like me who has not been in the marketing world very long. Uh, the distinction between the two is brand building is when you're doing the cool creative stuff, the Guinness Surfer adverts, those kind of things. Sales activation is when you're going with sales messages to your end user. Um, well, I would say that a great example of brand building was uh, BT's uh, lessons in tech that they were running with ITV. Now, I mean, there's nothing, I don't think anyone set out to be cool uh, with, yeah. with, with those those are the films that they made, but they, they set out to be helpful to the consumer, to solve a problem that the consumer had, and they did it in a way which will have reflected brilliantly upon BT as a company uh, and will make people feel good about BT. And I think that that halo effect will last for days, weeks, months, maybe years. So that is good brand building. So I don't, I don't, I think you, I think it's wrong to, to uh, describe to, to say that brand building is the cool part. Uh, brand, brand building still sells, but it does it in a, uh, a more emotional way. Yeah. Yeah. You know? and, and, and a more now, involving. Yeah. And uh, I suppose, it, obviously, as the book goes into, uh, in your point of view, we're not entering, but completely immersed in an era when brand building has largely been replaced by social purpose marketing? No, no, I think that uh, brands see, um, well, I think, I think to, to build brands properly, you need a brand idea, I think. You need a fundamental promise that you are making, that that, that that you are making about that product or service and how it will be useful to the people who are your prospects and customers. Okay, you need a brand idea at the core of, uh, of, of your marketing activity. And that brand idea needs to, as I say, define how useful your product or service can be to, that, to, to the core of your customers. And usually it's pretty single-minded, okay? Um, I would say that the danger is that we've substituted usefulness for righteousness. So how useful will this be to the consumer has been substituted, has been replaced for how righteous will this make the consumer feel? 
Okay, and that is the that is the danger with purpose replace in pragmatic, fundamental problem solving uh, promises. Does that make sense? So the yeah. danger is that you've substituted usefulness for righteousness, and I do not think that the majority of people buy a product. They buy it because it helps them either do something practical or it makes them feel, uh, you know, something fundamentally good about themselves. And of course, being feeling righteous is one of those things. But I don't think that that is the driving reason why people buy products and services. You know, no. kind of most people buy a product or service because of its efficacy. You yes. know, kind of, um, it will help me in some way. It will solve a problem for me. So I think purpose-driven advertising does work. I'm not saying blanketly that it doesn't, but I think it works to a certain consumer and it works for certain products or services where it is baked into that product or services uh, persona. Yeah, and a great example you give in the book of where those, where the brand's persona and the social purpose are completely incongruous or largely incongruous. Could be the Heineken oh, example. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of Heineken's, uh, was it One World Together or whatever, in which it was a very clever film in which people who were diametrically opposed on some fa fairly basic social justice issues were uh, were put in a room together and 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 then realized that they were individuals rather than, than, than caricatures of each other. And they, having been given no alternative but to talk to each other, did momentarily start to see the other's point of view. But the fact that they did it over a, a bottle of Heineken rendered those issues, um, I would say, uh, Puerile, or what, what is the word I'm, I'm searching for? And it, it, it made those issues um, negligible, you know, kind of that things can be solved over a bottle of beer. But lo and behold, that's what brands who are social purpose agents do, you know, kind of they, they proffer some fairly uh, platitudinous solutions to problems that are complex and uh, require much thought and much consideration. Yes, and the worry is for our industry, at the very least, uh, if not the brands, um, is that consumers are not foolish and they'll know that buying a Heineken won't necessarily do the hard work of repairing social divisions. And Absolutely. You yeah, may distrust the brands and the advertisers as a result. Well, I mean, they know that advertising goes deeply into the shallow end of most things, you know, kind of on, on social, political, cultural levels. Um, and they also do not need their moral compass set by people who make beer, soap and shampoo. You know, they, I mean, and what right have the makers of beer, soap and shampoo to even talk about setting a moral compass? For, for, for the consumer. But what you, I think what we've got to realize that this is a one, perhaps one of the first ever, you know, kind of corporate elite led social revolutions that we're seeing here. Yes. You know, yes. Kind of, and as I was the, reading the, the book, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, the, the likes of Unilever are assuming a role which nobody has asked them to assume. Yeah. There, there is no, they have no qualifications to assume that role, you know, kind of, um, 
And it's audacious in the extreme for them to assume, for them to think they can get away with it. And no one's challenging them. Yeah. And, and this is it. As I was, as I was reading the book, that was one of your points that kept coming back that, that really did make sense to me. And, um, uh, and I, 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 and I hadn't, <coughs> I still have not been able to, uh, put into words in a satisfying way. But it's that, mm. um, this is an, we're obviously in an inverted time and in, on many dimensions. And one of the ones that you've highlighted is that uh, the people telling us that we ought to clean up our act are the, uh, the few at the top of the, uh, the, the, the social hierarchy, the, the yeah. universe, university educated residents of uh, Islington and yeah. you know, places like that on relatively high salaries. In um, big brands and big agencies, so you know they occupy two uh, privileges, uh, two privileged positions at once. One being socioeconomic, and then the other being moral. Yes, yes, yeah. I think that it, it could possibly be that the big, the Unilevers, the Procter and Gamble's, who are making this power grab, have realized, have read the writing on the wall that globalization wasn't necessarily particularly popular. Um, and that there were, uh, uh, there were grave doubts about um, its beneficial uh, its benefits for the for the mainstream of society, and they've 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 almost got their they it could possibly be that they've got their retaliation in first before the massive bash, backlash comes against globalization. Uh, they have assumed the moral high ground to say, well, actually, no, we aren't. You know, kind of we we. Globalization in the form of social justice campaigns is a great thing, you know. Kind of, um, so it, it could be a it, it could be a defensive, a very clever defensive gambit by them. But it is also the the elites, um, you know, kind of talking down. Yes, know? and um, let I mean let if we should we should kick over as many hornets' nests as we can while we're talking. So um, another thing you discuss at length again at the beginning of the book is the is the the um brexit issue and yes. um how that was a, a a parallel issue where you had uh somewhat of a um, educated minority uh morally despising uh the uh you know the, the the political wishes of the uh the the what would you call them the non Urban majority, as in you know the yeah. the the, rural, the non-metropolitan, the mainstream, the 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 working class stroke mainstream, the the yeah the mainstream of society, yeah yeah yes yes, and uh, I you know, obviously I say obviously I think it is obvious I I voted to remain, uh, however I have been less than impressed by uh, the remainers tack that the leave votes must have been uh, voted uh, must you know must have in the majority come from. Uh, Foolish working class people, easily mm. led by a few bad rich people, uh, probably also with a uh, corrupt moral compass. It's not a good faith argument. No, um, I voted to remain as well, um, but I, I, I've just been astonished by the the way that my friends who uh, live in. Um, who, who, you know, kind of work in Adland with me and, uh, and beyond, have wrapped themselves in the European Union flag as if it is just uh, as if it is the cloak of moral righteousness. When we all know that the 
well, I mean, it's it, it, it's a it's a French German cartel used to plunder the southern Mediterranean countries. You know, can there is no? I mean, it's on fairly dubious moral grounds, and the fact that it allows, you know, kind of like poor people to be exploited by people who want nannies and people who want Deliveroo drivers, you know, kind of. There's not a lot of, of high moral purpose to the European Union when you look at its economic and social impacts upon Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. Um, so, but but yes, I'm 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 baffled by how it how. It is, uh, it is the cloak of moral righteousness. Um, but I, it's, yeah, go on, ask me another question before I... <laughs> well, it was interesting that, to hook on to something, that, something else that you mentioned in the book. And this was, uh, again, it really struck me because um, I'd never considered putting it this way, but there's often a, what would you say? There's often an assumed liberal monopoly, again, coming from a liberal, an assumed liberal monopoly on compassion. Well, you know, we care about people. Conservatives don't care about people. But you drew the distinction that liberals care about people in general, whereas conservatives yes. seem to care about people in particular. So what do you mean by that? Yes. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. My mother has been in lockdown since March, uh, and I've had infrequent opportunities to go. I go and see her wherever I can. But she's 90, she's, she's asthmatic, and she smokes like a Turk. Um, so she's in great danger, but she's been looked after by her neighbours across the road who do a garden, who do, who make cook meals for her, do her shopping for her. Now, if I was to go to those two people and say, this is great, but tell me, what do you think about LBTQ rights or, you know, what do, what do you think about diversity, about me too? Well, you know, they would, they would look at me as if they would say, what do you want me to think about it? What? Mm -hmm. What, what can I think about it? What can I do? You know, kind of. Um, and so what they do is that they look after their, their, their neighbours, they look after the local community, they have a sense of uh, obligation and responsibility to those who they know, uh, but they don't feel any particular need to go and march through Sheffield, on, uh, thro march through, through Fleetwood on a Black Lives Matter protest. You know, kind of, uh, and they and I kind of respect that um, those set of priorities. You know, I don't say there's anything wrong with going on a march uh, for BLM in in Fleetwood, but but I think there's there's something very creditable about looking after your own and looking after the uh, the community in which you live. And if you read your Jonathan Haidt. Um, and his moral foundation theory, or the way he explains moral foundation theory, it is that the that the people on the left of uh, we have five basic bastions that make up our or pillars that make up our moral foundations, and the people on the left have got two of those very strongly, and those are about right uh, justice and fairness. Uh, but they lack the other three, which are about respect for authority, communitarianism, and uh, neighborliness, that kind of thing. Um, and your mainstream have got all five of those pillars in general, but you're, uh, we are, those on the left have just got very accentuated forms of the two about fairness and uh, social justice. Mm -hmm. So actually, we those on the left are lacking 
in 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 the in the moral foundations uh, 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 aren't as strong and aren't as broad based as those of the mainstream. So it's as if their uh, their concerns, um, people on the I think we're talking about the more extreme left, which is occupying more and more space yeah. at the moment. Um, their concerns can be uh, located distally. They can they can be or profess to be incredibly concerned about large groups of people, very distant and uh, almost, yes. you know uh, and divorced from them, and yes. have very little regard for actual people they know that they could help right now. Yes, well, but they are. I suppose there's a direct correlation between what uh, Elizabeth Currid Halkett calls the aspirational elite who we're talking about here and uh, the anywheres, you know, the distinction between anywheres and somewheres. Um, the people who look after my mom are from somewhere. You know, if you ask them where they're from, they'll say, we're, we're from Blackpool. You know, we've lived in this neighborhood for 40 years and this is where we're from and this is how I, this is what, this place informs our identity. And we have responsibilities and obligations to these people who make up the, the community in which I live. But if you are a from anywhere, um, as those who live in, who gravitate towards the metropolitan areas, who have been to university, who, who have, have left those routes, then they don't feel that same sense of obligation and responsibility to their community. You know, so they look elsewhere for means of expressing their compassion and uh, their sense of, of righteousness and justice. And it also doesn't cost you anything, you know, frankly. To, to the, the moral high ground is a fabulous neighbor to, neighborhood to live in because, quite frankly, the rents are very low. You're not, there's no expectations of you. You're not, you're not expected to sacrifice anything no, in order to, to... make declarations. You can make declarations, but not sacrifices. Yes. Apart from go on the occasional march through central, central London with all your mates, yeah. feeling very good about yourself. Yes. And in some cases, uh, you know, uh, maybe not, obviously there was the case in uh, London at Black, the Black Lives Matter protests where um, uh, there was some, some harm came to the police. And yeah. imme immediately I saw on things like Twitter, people felt they ought to Im immediately pick a side. And yeah. there were many people who I, con who I consider uh, ordinary, decent people who started saying, well, it's, it's okay that, the, the, uh, that you know, some harm came to the police because you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. Yes. Um, um, <laughs> Which is the example? Which is an example, I suppose, of where you've made declarations about, you know, moral, uh, for you know, about 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 being, you know, made declarations that offer you the moral high ground. And then yeah. when it comes to saying where do you stand on violence, they say, well, I don't really mind as long as it's, uh, you know, currently collectively, is, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but also, it's indicative of the fact that one of the the moral foundations is the respect for authority, which mm. the conservative, socially conservative mainstream still have and it's a very strong part of their moral makeup their ethical makeup whereas if you are one of the of the left then you don't have that you don't have that respect for authority it's not one of the pillars which support your ethical and moral 
makeup. And yes. so attacking the police is cool, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but but you uh, you show a picture of that to someone in the mainstream, and they'd be appalled. Yeah, uh, I wonder if part of it comes from uh, an idea, and I don't. It, there seems to be a an, an implicit idea, if not explicitly stated, that positions of authority are not earned; they are um, shared amongst people who uh, ha- are in that are in a somewhat privileged network. But I thought it might be good to talk about because we, we've gone away from it. Now to come back to it, you were by no means from a privileged position or community and yet made it to the global creative leadership team for Ogilvy. Yes, but I did go to university and university is still, alas, an indicator of class in our country. So although my father was a bricklayer, he was also a, um, a aspirational, ambitious bricklayer you know, kind of who owned, who built up his own building firm uh, before dying at 46, I hasten to add, in the process. Um, but he encouraged us to, in our, in, in our middle class, you know, he, he, he understood fully the middle class's sense of importance that they place upon education, you know, kind of, and he made sure that we were, we, we did our learning, you know. Um, so I didn't, you know, I, I, I wasn't brung up. You know, kind of. I um, so I, I was, I was, you know, intelligent. I had a good education. I knew how things worked. University teaches you bloody hell. I mean, the university life, when you get to postgraduate level, is more Byzantine than advertising ever might be, and then ever would be. You know, kind of like the politics. Good God. So I knew how. You know, I, I knew how to play the game. You know. Um. But yeah, but I started as a copywriter, and I that's and I found something that I thoroughly enjoyed, you know. So and then and got paid for it for crying out loud, seven thousand pounds a year for crying out loud. Mm. And so uh, there was uh, obviously you came, you rose to the top in a time when it was possible to move from the north of England, from Blackpool, where there are no jobs, uh, to uh, ascend the ladder to the top of a international networked creative agency. Um, and but I would hasten to add advertising used to be a repository for mavericks who couldn't find a niche or a job anywhere else. You know, what is it now? Like, um, 88% of the people who come into advertising have got a degree or a master's. Mm, 88% so- of the people who come into the industry, have, we talk about diversity, but... Um, you know, kind of like there ain't too many working class folk um, in, um, you know, kind of James Hill House runs a wonderful organization called Commercial Breaks, which its sole aim, I think, is to get working class people into the creative industries. And good old James, I, re- I spoke to him at the height of the Black Lives Matter hysteria, which the industry was going through at the time. And I said, how many calls do you usually get? Did you used to get before the BLM uh, uh, thing happened? He said, one a month. One one a month, he said, from agencies giving the people he'd nurtured a start. And he said, most of them were just ticking a box. We've got our working class kids. Then they dumped them in a corner. 
because Boudica and Oscar, probably, who were given them as their mentors, just couldn't understand any of the problems they had. They didn't under, actually probably didn't understand their patois, didn't understand their, the chip they might have on, the, have on their shoulder either, you know, kind of, and then they eventually drifted off, you know, kind of. Um, James does a great job, you know, I wish, I, I wish the agency world would support him more. But nowadays, so no, you know, 88% of people in Madland have got a degree or whatever. I mean, when I came to it, I mean, I, of course, had a degree or whatever, but we, it took on, you know, kind of misfits and mavericks and, you know, curious people when in both said, senses um, of the word. Um, Dominic Cummings, misfits and weirdos. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you get the sense that uh, Mr. Cummings is trying to do the same thing in uh, politics and the civil service that Adland was reputed for in the 80s. Yes, yes, fresh thinking, you know. Yeah. And if, uh, there, is a, there is no diversity of thought. There's no intellectual diversity in the industry. There's very little intellectual diversity in the industry mm. um, or in, in the media, in the, not just in advertising, but I think that, uh, that applies in the, across the creative industries. You know, you can come from whatever ethnic or, or gender background you want, but as, just as long as you agree with, with, the, with the group think. Yeah. And so do you think that accounts for some of the... We're, seeing, we're, we're in a time of polarized political opinion, you know. Um, and I wonder if part of what's going on is the fact that, as you said, there's very little diversity in media organizations. There tend to be all... all major media organizations appear to have their own party lines, so to speak. You know, in America, Fox News has what Fox News thinks, yes. and CNN has what CNN thinks. Yes. And I wonder if we're starting to sense that the world is becoming increasingly more complicated and uh, singular lines of thought are, not, are going to be insufficient at solving problems in a complex world. And so, you know, this is what is this, the question is, is this why you're a champion of intellectual diversity, different approaches to life, different ways of thinking, because the problems are starting to expand and become more and more diverse. So you need more ways of thinking to solve the problems. I think that, I think that you, you, you I think that, I think we, we who are, we who are bombarded by, by social media think that the, think that the polarization is, truly, you know, almost unbridgeable. But the, I would argue that the mainstream are, are, want a quiet life. They want to return to some kind of normalcy. Um, I, 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 I think that the Labour Party's dire um, performance in December uh, is indicative of that. Yeah, um, yeah. The first um, time I've ever seen the working class voting Tory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's because we are uh, the UK is a socially conservative country. That if Boris gets in again in the next election, we will have had a Tory government for thirteen years, a, a, a Labour government for thirteen years in the past fifty, which is which is dangerous. You know, you do not want that kind of um, monopoly on government. Oh, by one political party, 13 years in 50 years. And the interesting thing is those 13 years, the Labour Party was a centrist, a, mixed, a supporter of the mixed economy, um, was a moderate social democratic party, much hated by 
people who who purport to be Labour Party loyalists, you know, yes. kind of. But but the majority of people are, I think, socially conservative but moderate people. Yes. Um, and I think that the media is 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 tearing us apart with its with with with, with catastrophizing um, uh, views on. On, on the polarization of our, of our society. Um, yes. Um, uh, yeah, and I think we're, we are to blame. We in the media, in advertising, in, in the theater, in, in cinema, um, I think we're to blame for showing a whole, for seeing the world as we see it, but not as it is seen by the majority of people who we're supposedly preparing our creative work for. Yes, and this is to your point of uh, uh, something you discuss, again, at great length in the book, um, which we've not said yet, available on Amazon. Um, is, oh, uh, <laughs> quite all right. Uh, we uh, lost my train of thought now. Pointed out that there's a lot of advertising which is made for advertisers now and not for audiences. Well, I think it's made for for the... I mean, we've always done that. I mean, I, can you find a car commercial that has ever featured somebody under the age of 40, despite the fact that first, the average age of first-time buyers is 54? Wow. You know, kind of, we've always created advertising for ourselves. We've, you know, kind of, and we've always, and we get kicked up the arse. And we show people the, a world that they don't recognize. You know, kind of, there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of, there's a lot of talk about engagement. You know, we must engage with our audiences. We must engage, you know, there's this an engaging. People will engage with what you have written when they can see themselves in the story you are telling. You know, it's the, it, it's, it's storytelling 101. People will engage with what you've written when they can see themselves in the story you are telling. And we are not telling stories that people can identify with. And that's yeah. the problem. What kind of stories um, are we telling? We're telling stories that make us feel good about ourselves, that, that yeah. also win us awards at Cannes. Oh, you know, yeah. kind of, you know, kind of, it's, it's virtually impossible now to win a, I would have thought, to, to win a Cannes Grand Prix unless there is an element of social purpose in the, in the piece of work that you've produced. Do you, think you know, yeah, and, and DNA D as well. I mean, DNA D is turning into the communication. is turning into the communications wing of momentum? Interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that. Why do you think? Uh, when did you first start to notice the shift in political bias in Adland that went? I mean, obviously, you would expect advertising to be a overwhelmingly liberal place because of its uh, preponderance towards creativity and creatives' preponderance towards liberal thinking, but. Uh, why? When did you start to notice that it was becoming like a political monoculture in advertising? Well, I'd remind you, Greg, that the the most happening, daring, adventurous, exciting agency when I was growing up was Back the agency of the Conservative Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, Labour isn't working. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. You know, kind of, um, and but, but also, I mean, work cheek by jowl with the Tim Bell. You know, kind of from Suches. It wasn't just they knocked off a couple of, you know, kind of famous posters. They, they worked cheek by jowl with the Tory party in order to make them popular, you know. Um, 
to, to advise us. I mean, if you were to tell that to, to young entrants into the industry now, they'd be they'd be appalled. They'd be absolutely. They'd probably decide that they would march on Sachi and Sachi. You know, kind of. Yes. They would. They would. They would um, let's organise a boycott of Sachi and Sachi because of the, the you know, kind of their past misdemeanours. No, it's, it's absolutely uh, feasible, but if you imagine, let's say, Adam and Eve represent the Conservative Party at the next election, you'd have brands walking out on Adam and Eve. He would. would, yeah, yeah. And you'd get, you'd, there would be a boycott of Adam and Eve, and people would be resigning, and people would, uh, you know, uh, um, yeah. So when did it you first be... notice that this was happening? Um, oh, I would say... When a couple of things, I mean, the financial crash, 2008, 2009, didn't do it, didn't do capitalism any good. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say when the Labour Party, the, the financial crash enabled the Labour Party, the Labour hard left to pulverize the moderate middle of the road, mixed economy approach of Blair and Brown, we got the wrong Miliband. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we got Ed instead of David, and that was a big, I think, mistake. As as uh, David said of Ed, you've turned the page back, you know, kind of, and that's why you lost. And then what did the Labour Party do? But they not only turned the page back, they threw the book away and produced, you know, the Marx and Engels yeah. for us, you know. And, but, but up until then, I think it was possible for left-leaning advertising people before Jeremy and John came along, to kind of reconcile, their, do a bit of triangulation of their own and reconcile their left-wing political beliefs with their work in, you know, kind of capitalist, uh, you know, oiling the machinery of capitalism. When Jeremy and John came along, you could not do that. You were a class traitor, you know. You were, you know, you, they, uh, you know, you were working for um, the machinery of oppression. You know, and so how the hell do you attend your dinner parties in Islington and Chiswick and say, I work in advertising, love, you know, kind of really? Leave now, you know. Oh, God, we don't sell things anymore. We don't do it. This isn't the 1980s. We save the world. Right. We're, we're here to save the world, man. You know, kind of, we don't do that. We're, we're like one big NGO, our agency. <laughs> so what, um, do you, what do you think of, um, what do you think of, uh, or what can I say there's another there's another reason why as well because of, of the collapse of the economy in the 2008 um, I think brought on the, the the squeezing of the middle classes in the, in this country you know kind of when you could get seven percent interest on your on your savings and when your yeah. house when the, the, your dinner party conversation you know you knew that the, your house, your house price has just risen by another three percent you know since from 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 starters to dessert yeah. suddenly you've got a middle class that feels very squeezed and there's no longer got the influence and there's no longer got the confidence um, and there's no longer the future doesn't belong to the middle classes anymore um, you know kind of the and so what you do is that you, again, you acquire your status, you, you acquire your sense of superiority from your moral uh, and your cultural capital. Okay. Yes. yes. And yes. that's how you prove that your superiority, which goes back to the European Union vote, you know, kind of the inexplicable wrapping of the of people in the European flag as some kind of self-righteous. It wasn't. It's simply a means of proving that I am better than you. 
I am yeah. smarter, I am more intelligent, you know, kind of uh, by a threatened middle-class elite. Yes. And, then, and the advertising elites feel exactly the same way. They can't go to the Ivy. There's one famous person in advertising who is hard, hard left, who was famed for his table at the Ivy. And I remember one campaign issue in which the diary section said, oh, my God, you are the, some, a woman came up to this guy, the most good-looking guy in, in the Ivy. And the Ivy was full of actors and whatever. And that was a campaign diary issue. And this person is now the poster boy for social justice campaigning in this country. He can't afford the eyes table, but his corner, turn at the, corner table at the Ivy is no longer available to him, Greg. Wow. I had no idea that... Um, well, I, I never... I, I certainly hadn't considered that. It's connected another dot for me, again, by the same author I mentioned before, Douglas Murray. I would, say, yeah, I would, just, I, I would, describe, him, I would describe him as a small C conservative which is why I find it interesting that you're finding these kind of people saying, I heard him say recently, you can't expect young people to be enthusiastic about capitalism if they've no means of accruing capital. And so I suppose that's another argument as to and what you just said is another argument as to why a thriving middle class is actually essential to social stability and liberal politics. Because uh, when you have, as you say, a not, not, I don't know, I'm not an economist, maybe it's not a shrinking middle class, but certainly feeling the, feeling the pinch yeah. The new the new battleground is which opinions you hold dear and who yeah. you can uh, who you can take to task and accuse for having the wrong opinions. Um, but you, it's compensation. It's compensation. But the middle classes are the rich are different. You know, kind of the very uh, or the or the affluent are different. And they are very good at defending their position. So while they're house priced, they may be in negative equity. And while uh, they, you know, kind of while they're not getting their bonuses anymore, and while their, their careers may be threatening to fall off the cliff, what they've done is they've created a a, a nepotism network, which allows their children. They they pauper themselves in order to put their children through private school, um, and send them and and shoot them around. They ferry them around from weekend to weekend to the violin lessons and to the tennis lessons and to the dance lessons and whatever. And what, they, what we have is a nepotism network in this country led by the, the metropolitan middle-class elites who are keeping the, the outsiders out, you know, kind of the great unwashed, the ones they look down upon. They are keeping them out. You know, so you get a job in advertising, you know, kind of, I mean, I get asked still, I have no influence in the industry anymore, but I'm frequently asked by people, can you get Boudica, a, a placement at so-and-so, or, or, you know, kind of um, Jerome needs, uh, can you get him two weeks at so-and-so? And I said, I, I wouldn't anyway, because have they read any books on advertising? No. In that case, they're not interested. They're not interested, you know, kind of. But I can't. But but the, so the so the middle classes, whilst not rich, they have the cultural capital, uh, and they and they prove their superiority through their acquisition of cultural capitalism. One of that is is a is is the is a control of the institutions of power. You know, kind of the universities. You know, I, can you get my daughter on an M MA in creative writing at Trinity? Well, yes, just have a word with Alan Yentop. You know, kind of who's, yeah. who's an erstwhile friend. You know, kind of. So it's there's a it's a closed shop. 
which is, um, again, there is the, di the diversity issue is very interesting. Of all of the BAME people, the, 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 the pitifully few BAME people we have working in advertising, 87% of them are privately educated, Greg. Yes, I... Um, Seven, as opposed to a national average of 7%. Yes, I, I, I heard a, uh, you know, from a, 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 a sort of a connection two nodes away from me, talking about the BBC, saying there's, there's an awful lot of enthusiasm for um, recruiting people who are from either ethnic minorities or who are, uh, who are women. Um, I was going to say minority, but of course women aren't a minority. Um, but there's no discussion at all about getting people who weren't privately educated. It's not that that okay. it's not that that isn't a priority. It's that it's not a discussed priority. It doesn't matter where they got educated. It matters which identity box they fall into, and which doors can be opened for you. Yes, you know you go you send these kids. You pulverize yourself to send your kids to private education, so that you can go to parents' opening days. You can go to you know kind of do all the social occasions. You can park your your Land Rover outside somebody's Boxster and you can have a chat at the school gates and you can end up in Mirabelle with them, you know, kind of because, or, or, you, or you can holiday home with them, you know, and, it, and one hand washes the other. It's yeah. a, um, you know, kind of, it's, it's the old boy network uh, yeah. has recreated itself for the culturati. Yes, yes. Whereas it used to be for the exclusively... Uh West, Westminster, Eton, Westminster yeah. School, Cambridge, yeah. Oxford. Yeah. Um, well, it still is. It still yeah. is. But it's old Old money has, has been replaced by new money. And there isn't as much new money, but my God, they're keeping hold of the status. Yes. So uh, let's see if we can zoom in on some, um, you know, to, 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 to think, think towards a conclusion. Let's try. Am and, I banging on, by the way? Or not is at this all. I could happily keep you for another half an hour, but you already mentioned. You're going to edit it and take out some of the Frankie Howard-like things that I come up with. Ooh, when, I was speaking, when I was speaking to Rory Sutherland about this, he said the ers and the ums are actually an integral part of your speech, not to be. Uh, replace or edit it out but I understand I that think that. Rory would object to anyone editing anything out of what Rory says <laughs> yeah okay point taken but um, but yeah um, I was I've been thrown for a loop now yes I was going to see if we could maybe from you a former agency owner uh, former global leadership team creative and also former working class Blackpool lad What's the advice for the young people who aren't in this elite circle about how to not necessarily just get into advertising, but about how to ascend in the world? Because obviously the key thing we're worried about underneath all of this is yeah. lacking the, there's, there's, a, there's a great plethora of talent out there and much of it will be obscured and unable to get to where it needs to be. What's the advice for the talented young people to get to get the opportunities in life, even if they're not part of this culturati? First, I would say that I'm I'm not, I'm not a working class hero. You know, I I, I I was a middle. You know, I, we 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 uh, yeah. I'm not a work. I don't want to wrap myself in that. We had money. Okay. You know, thank you. You know, and I had a good education and uh, a very good. You know, kind of whatever. Um, what would I say to to working class kids now who are trying to break into the creative industries, for example? You mean? 
Um, good gracious me. Um, I would say don't fall for the identity politics label that will be, that will be attached to you. Uh, which we've already done because we're talking about a, a socio-economic group. That is, that is a socio-economic group, but it is fluid. The barriers to advance are still surmountable. You are not a working class person and therefore that's who, all you will ever be. Uh, there are great virtues in uh, being working class, but there are also great virtues in being middle class. You know, and you pick out the ones that you want. Learn to play the game. Yeah, of, um, and education is still by far the route to advancement. And I have always maintained that one of the secrets of my success was that I read more than anybody else about my industry. I was brought up to by David Ogilvy. I worked with Ogilvy, I was around when he was around, and he was a maven for learning and studying, okay? I worked with Drayton Bird, and Drayton said, the reason I'm cleverer than I'm successful because I've, well, I'm not sure Drayton, yes, Drayton is the clever man, but I've stayed one book ahead of everybody else. Uh, I've always, my, my advice to people is, if you read five books about advertising, you will be amongst the ninety, the ten percent best educated people in the industry about our industry. And if you read ten books, you can claim guru status. We're just not interested in what we do. Um, we think we can wing it. We think we can intuit it. And a lot of people who will be able to trust to godparents and friends of friends to get on. If you can't trust to that, then it's down to you and it's down to what you know and what you've learned. Um, and knowing more shit than everybody else trumps, uh, I hope, I devoutly hope, um, knowing more than everyone else and stamina and not feeling sorry for yourself trumps pr undeserved privilege every time. Well, I think that's a brilliant note to go out on. And so, uh, yeah, this has been great. Thanks for talking to me. Do you want to give, uh, for anyone who might be watching or listening, do you want to give the book another plug or any other books you've written? Because I know you've written a few. No, uh, all I would say is mm -hmm. I wrote the, this is important. I wrote the first, I wrote the book. <laughs> I sent it to the publishers on March the 1st, thinking this, was a, this book has got a vital, important message the industry needs to hear. The book came out from the publisher on March the 20th. <laughs> when the when the world, as well as advertising, was a little preoccupied by something more vital and urgent, um, Amazon, unfortunately, you know, uh, wouldn't postpone the launch. Uh, so the book launched to the softest launch ever. You know, I didn't tell anybody about it, um, and I set about writing the industry's response to COVID nineteen and the ensuing and the in, in, the. Um, the coming post-pandemic post, uh, recession. Uh, and that came out um, last week. So I've got the first, I've got April, May, June, July's response, the ad industry, how it's responded. Has it, is it going for social purpose or commercial purpose? And the battle between the two. Uh, and how will, I, how will the industry, it's a vital conflict between the two, I think. Well, um, I've I've only read the first edition of the book, so maybe you'd like to summarize uh, a little bit of the post-COVID bit for us. 
Well, I, I, what I need to add is that Amazon is still selling, unfortunately, the first book. So people are buying the COVID edition, COVID-19 edition and the, Amazon, the bastards, are shipping the original. Oh. And now they're saying that the, now they've sold all of those. They're saying that there'll be a month's wait, which there won't. So if people have bought the thing, it will be with you in week, in days, probably in days. Yeah. And yeah, so and, and the book. The, the, net, the final chapter, which is a good-sized chunk of the book, I mean, it's a substantial part of the book now, is how did the industry respond to the biggest events since the, the Great Depression and the Second World War? Um, and did it double down on purpose, or did it realize, come to the conclusion, that if we are all going, if we are going to survive this thing, then we need to revive the economy, we need to start selling stuff. Our products and services uh, uh, to keep our factories open, our restaurants open, to page wage bills, to, to keep people off the unemployment register. We need to get the economy going, and that needs. And for that, we need to rediscover our commercial purpose. And that's essentially what the book is about. And whether we've done that, the final chapter an analyzes our response, and some of it is woeful, some of it is hilarious. <laughs> the way the industry has responded, uh, in a grim way, I'm afraid. <laughs> in a black, there's a lot of black humour. Yes. And well, interspersed with that is we, we fold Black Lives Matter into that as well, which erupted in the middle of the period that I was analysing. Right, of course, yeah. So uh, that'll be interesting to, to read and to see how it unfolds in the coming year. Uh, I think, I mean, we're, so it's hard to know how long we'll be either in a sort of pseudo lockdown for, and as a result, it's hard to know how long the economic recovery will take. Um, I'm prepared for the next five to ten years to be affected by this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm afraid. Um, well, Keir Starmer, God bless him, said three million unemployed. Um, the IMF has said four, have said possibly four million unemployed. We haven't seen figures like that since I was a boy, essentially. Wow. Wow. Um, so it's uh, so we do. I'm afraid we. There's an old saying, right? When I got into this racket, uh, it was explained to me that advertising is what you do when you can't afford to send a salesman, right? So if I have a a factory that needs to start working, if I've got an inventory that needs shifting, if I've got a wage bill that needs needs paying you know, kind of, and workers to keep on in work, then advertising is a good idea. It's what I, it's what I do when I can't afford to send a salesman. Right? There are some people who believe that advertising is what you do when you can't send someone from diversity, inclusivity, and environmental protection. And that isn't quite as appealing to somebody who's got a factory that needs to be running, an inventory that needs to be shifting, and a wage bill that needs to be met. Mm -hmm. And especially when an S-shaped recession is heading our way, and the S is for shit shaped. <laughs> it's funny because, uh, I've, and I always feel like it's worth uh, qualifying that an easy criticism to take towards uh, people having a discussion like the one we're having, saying uh, that that has a, uh, even a measured criticism of the ideals of diversity and inclusion. The criticism is usually well, it's because you don't like them because they threaten and challenge you which I think is a rather, uh, that's a, not a good faith argument. Again, it's like, well, I assume because you're not on the same page as me that it must be because you're morally reprehensible and bankrupt. And so, I don't know, I just wondered if before we close off, you wanted to address that idea, the idea that 
you know, if you're against, or it, not against, if you're critical of diversity measures, it could be it's because you don't like the idea of racial diversity. Well, I think that that is a that that is a, a tactic used by anybody who doesn't want to have an argument. I mean, if I if I if I accuse you of being a a fascist. I've ring fenced your argument and therefore don't have to have it. I have to have it with you. If I accuse you of being anti Semitic, I've ring fenced your uh, argument and therefore don't have to have it with you. And so if you accuse me of, if, if, if one is accused of being anti diversity simply because one doesn't think that that is the emphasis that the majority of our industry should be placing upon the work that they do, it doesn't necessarily mean that I am, I am anti diversity at all. Uh, to be accused of that would I would I would I would I suggest be a means of ring fencing my arguments and saying we can dismiss it. We'll have to hope that uh, having the kind of conversations that we're having, we can promote some uh, good faith argument again and uh, start to. I, I hope so. I hope so. Uh, a bit of civil civil debate. Yeah. Um, and I I sincerely hope I haven't said anything that is uh, that is so offensive that today that 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 meant that people couldn't engage me in a in a in an open discussion about it. But I always leave my e- email address in every book that I've ever written. Uh, and I've always uh, being a direct response merchant, I've always encouraged I think everything should you know, every communication should or pretty much every communication should uh, elicit a, a response. Uh, and I welcome people's um, comments. I mean, Richard Huntington um, paid me the greatest of compliments. He's, you know, Richard is a is a man of the left. Um, He's going uh, the, on the podcast, in fact. Is he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a, but, and he said, I disagree with much of what you've said, Steve, but um, it's the thing that has given me most pause of anything that I've read for a very, very long time. Yeah, um, and um, and that that for me is the, I think the nicest thing, not the nicest thing, the most edifying thing that anybody has said, amongst many edifying things. I'm pleased to say, but um, that's the most edifying thing that that anyone said about my argument.